The Bible tells us to everything there is a season, a time to build, a time to reap, and a time to sow, and a time to heal. This is the time to heal in America. So proclaimed Joe Biden Saturday night after his clear and convincing victory over Donald Trump. The president-elect made clear, as he always has, that he plans to govern not as president of the blue states or the red states, but as president of all the states. But is that even possible in a country as sorely divided as this one? We'll get insights on what Biden has in mind from Brittany Shepard, who has been covering the Biden-Harris campaign for Yahoo News. And we'll get the view from inside the Trump bunker from Yahoo News's Hunter Walker on this episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. Okay, I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Quite the exciting evening. We have a new president of the United States, and we are joined by our Biden campaign reporter, Brittany Shepard. Brittany, quite the evening. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Good evening, guys. Yeah, it's election night, day five. It is finally over. I mean... What a stunning turn of events. It came down to the wire right till Pennsylvania. Um, and now it's ending with the fireworks and drone light show in Wilmington. Just just a stunning, stunning couple of days. So, you know, in one sense, though, I got to say, it was pretty clear by early Wednesday morning Biden was going to win. The vote numbers looked inevitable when you knew where the outstanding votes were in Fulton County, where the uh, outstanding votes were in Philadelphia and and Allegheny County. Mm. Yet, you know, the networks put us through this ordeal in part because, I mean, my you know view is where there used to be a competition to be first, here there was a competition to be the most cautious. So nobody wanted to call a race when it was clear that Biden was going to win. Well, yeah, Mike, you're exactly right. Like, I have tons of friends who work in the network, and they are basically telling me under the table that they were just so worried about having to call a race like Arizona that, you know, say Fox called it first and everybody else was holding their fire because it would be more embarrassing for them to pull it back and give fodder to the Trump campaign and to Trump himself to point and say, like, look, the network's got it wrong. You can't trust the media. You can't trust the call and kind of just, like, further so this uh, 11th hour messaging he's been giving his campaign to, to giving, sorry, his supporters to just completely throw away the results even as they um, come in and there's no widespread evidence of voter fraud. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely what was going on. I mean, I think there was a collective sense in the media that, that as you said, could not give fodder to a president who is willing to engage in these kinds of conspiracy theories and who has millions of followers who 
you know, kind of uh, hang on to his every word, that that was just would be really destructive. So, Brittany, you listened to Joe Biden give this speech, a a remarkable moment because, you know, this is the third time uh, that he's run for president. Uh, The third time's a a charm. Uh, What were your reflections as you as you listened to him after covering him during this long, arduous, hard fought campaign? Yeah, I've heard versions of this stump speech. You know, it feels like almost 100 times, but this is perhaps the most hopeful I've heard Joe Biden for the entire year, maybe the last year and a half. You know, coronavirus has essentially completely flipped the tone of this election. So many people are scared. So many people know folks who have gotten sick, who have died. And Biden and his team have tried to meet that moment with a quieter, somber messaging in contrast to so much of what was happening over in Trump land, which was so loud and cacophonous. And tonight, I think he was able to kind of peel off of that and just have like pure celebration. Like you said, Dan, he's been running for president for a very long time. Actually, uh, today they got the call on the same, the same exact day he was elected to the Senate all of those years ago. So it's such a deeply personal race for him. I think especially because Bo Biden, his late son who died of brain cancer, was the one to get him to run again. So it's like such a full circle moment for him that was really striking. Um, yeah, I think I think optimism, I mean, I really think that was the kind of the key theme here. I was really struck by one line, which is, he said, if we can decide not to cooperate, then we can decide to cooperate. And what I heard from him all through uh, this speech, and I guess uh, really throughout this campaign, but you know, sometimes you don't really hear it because it sounds like bromides. This idea that he actually believes what he says. He actually believes that we can be more united. He actually believes a kind of a demystification of this idea that we are so polarized, we are so at each other's throats in this country that there's really little that we can do about it. And I think, you know, look, it sure isn't going to be easy. And maybe he is naive about his ability to do the things that he says he's going to do. But he believes it. And if he believes it, maybe that can be infectious. Sorry, Mike, I'm getting carried away with myself here. I know you're about to say so. I know you're about to say something way yeah, no, more no, cynical. No. I, uh, well, yeah, exactly that. I noticed that, you know, for all the talk about how I want to be the president of not the blue states and the red states, but the United States and reaching out to Trump voters, I thought it was pretty conspicuous that he there was no reference to President Trump at all. Just ignoring the fact that what he would is you say? Still, you know, I hope the president. I hope to work with the president on the yeah. transition. I want to congratulate him on a hard-fought campaign. There's all sorts of things you could say to acknowledge the fact that he is still the president for the next two months. I'm not saying that's bad or good, but I, it just leapt out at me yeah. that there was not even an allusion to him. And then putting on top of that, and this is uh, you know where I think this sort of fits in, what's the first thing that Biden said he's going to do? He's going to name this coronavirus task force on Monday. So starting Monday, once he does that, Who's running the show? 
Who is everybody going to be paying attention to? Who's the public going to be looking for? And, you know, that's kind of an interesting dynamic because, you know, they're not in the White House quite yet. There's another couple of months to go and there is somebody who is. So I'm just wondering about the potential tension there between this transition, which at least from the top, from the start, is ignoring the fact that there is a president and how that president, particularly this president, is going to process that. No, Mike, I think that's a really great point. I, you're, you're right. He's already operating like he's president, especially with this. He already has a COVID task force. I uh, suspect that many of those doctors and advisors will be the same people on this panel he announced this Monday. But I, I would want to add, from the beginning of his primary, he was already acting like he was president. He was sending out daily guidances in ways that was untraditional to primary candidates at the time. He was trying to hold court. He's having coronavirus briefings and he was addressing the nation like he was already stepping in to lead. So this is kind of, it follows in theme of what he's been doing the entire time. And frankly, I would be surprised if he reached out and mentioned President Trump. I mean, he tried when President Trump got coronavirus to say him and his wife were praying for Melania and and for Trump. And that kind of fell on deaf ears and he was chastised for it for more progressive parts of his party. There was so much unifying in his mind and his own message. He even walked out to Bruce Springsteen's, we take care of our own. He's really big about setting thematic scenes. And I I just can't see where he would think that it'd be a win for him to make any more concessions to Trump, who obviously has no, no plan to make any concessions to Biden. Brittany, one thing we have not yet talked about, another aspect of the historic nature of this election is that the vice president-elect is, uh, for the first time, a woman of color, a black woman who is also of South Asian, uh, Indian descent, and Jamaican. So you have written about Kamala Harris, about the meaning of Kamala Harris, about the cultural impact that she could have uh, on this country. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like several glass ceilings all at once. Like you said, it's not just about being the first woman, which in and of itself is historic beyond belief. It's about being the first black person, the first Caribbean American, West Indian person, the first South Asian American to be in that spot. And for there's a lot of this, there's like a, a lot of talks we have uh, in black families. And one of those talks is that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much. And you heard that messaging from Obama and from First Lady Michelle Obama and a little bit from Kamala Harris. And when I spoke to Democrats, they told me that being able to see Harris on the stage is chipping away at the argument that black Americans or Americans of color are, are finally able to get their due for the appropriate amount of work. And Harris has been the first black woman in almost all the spaces she's occupied since she left Howard and went back to California to work in the legal system there and eventually was attorney general of of the state. I mean, what was really striking to me is at the end of the speech when everybody was on stage watching the fireworks, Harris came out with her husband, Douglas Emhoff and her family and she brought these two young black girls and I don't know who exactly they are. They could be related to her or not. And just the look in their eyes when they were looking up at her and taking everything in, it just, it, it is just striking to me. I, I didn't know that I would live to see the day. And, and there are lots of other Americans across the political spectrum, I think, are, are, are in the same bucket 
as I am. I mean, I spoke to Cory Booker the other day who said that this was just the cries of their ancestors of the civil rights movement. Slavery was not a very long time ago in the grand scheme of American history. And so this just is a bookend for all of those people who are finally thinking all the work we did, all the work our ancestors have did, have been um, borne out into reality. So I just think it's a really salient, important thing, divorced of the politics of it all. And of course, given Joe Biden's age, 78, uh, when he becomes president, she comes in as, uh, if not the prohibitive favorite to be the Democrat standard bearer in either 2024 or 2028, if uh, if Biden does serve two terms, and for you know those little All right, girls, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's, well, you know, uh, but, but look, no, Ryan, like, I don't t- think we are. And so, yeah. sorry, Danny, I didn't mean to talk yeah. over you. Only because it, during the primary, there was already chatter of okay, if she steps aside and yields to Biden, people are gaming for the future. Joe Biden is very old. He's older than Trump. And that's why he was meandering on the primary, forgetting what city he was in. And Democrats, I think, at least the ones I speak to, are tired of losing. So they think in their mind they can put people in. Of course, yes, maybe we're getting a little ahead of some skis. We haven't even had inauguration (laughs) yet. But I I just think Harris, if you talk to her friends, she is a planner. I would not be surprised if she already has her eyes on walking from EEOB to the West Wing. I I actually totally agree with you. And I also thought she was quite inspirational uh, tonight. I mean, I I, I think uh, she registered on an emotional level with, you know, so many millions of Americans, you know, white, black, Asian, you you name it. I mean, it it just cut through. So, And I I do want to say, oh, sorry, that she was wearing white, suffragette white, and it's been centennial since women have been allowed to vote. So there was just so many things happening at once. Sorry, Mike, continue. No, no, I was just going to say, and this is really a conversation we'll be having with Hunter, who's coming on next, just what it must have been like for Donald Trump to be watching this event tonight, where he essentially has become history. He's no longer the center of the universe. And, you know, no matter how defiant he might be in his own mind, you know, uh, for him and those around him, it was now painfully uh, obvious that the baton has been taken from him and passed to somebody else. Right. And he's a man, um, obviously preoccupied with crowd size, at least from what I can tell. There are a lot of people in that drive-in crowd um, there to see Biden. And when we saw that footage of Trump rolling in from Sterling after golfing, driving into the White House, when, I mean, from what I can tell, just thousands and thousands and thousands of people dancing and praising him, leaving right outside of his front door. I, I, it was just so, such a stunning image to see so many people essentially giving him the proverbial middle finger on the way out. Yeah, just one last question, uh, Brittany. From Mm -hmm. what you know, know, we're going to have this uh, two-and-a-half-month transition process. Is Biden going to do it from Wilmington, or will they be moving to Washington and preparing for the transition or undergoing the transition in D.C.? 
It's a good question, Mike. I mean, I think they're kind of calling it on the fly. From what I've been hearing, I hear that they're going to kind of hold in Wilmington until they can make determinations of what's going to be the most safe and what makes the most sense. Of course, a lot of the folks that they would tap into health and advisors and stuff are in D.C., but for the last couple of months, they've been having a virtual operation to obviously the great success they won. And Jen O'Malley Dillon is pretty serious about making sure nobody in the campaign is um, at risk and she tries to move the ship as close, uh, steer the ship as straight as she can. So I suspect a lot will be from Wilmington, though uh, that might be open to change, I think, as we get closer to Christmas time and eventual inauguration. And I've got one last question for Brittany, which is, uh, this is obviously a time for Joe Biden, his family, and the Biden campaign to celebrate. But in uh, less than three months, he's going to have to govern. Uh, He's probably not going to have a Democratic majority uh, in the Senate, although we'll have to see what happens with these runoffs. Do you have any sense of how uh, he is going to try to... (laughs) act like he has a mandate. I mean, I think the Washington Post reported today that uh, right off the bat, he's going to have a flurry of executive orders rescinding a lot of the things that Trump did, rescinding the Muslim ban, rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, rejoining the World Health Organization, you know, I think maybe bringing back the Dreamers program. But what will he do to indicate that he actually, you know, is not a neutered president, uh, that this is not a stillborn administration? Well, if Mitch McConnell has any say, he's going to try to make sure uh, that Biden is as as neutered as possible. It's going to be an uphill climb for Biden. Like you said, I've been hearing that he's going to issue as many executive orders as he can. Day one, rejoin the Paris Climate Accord. He's been saying this on the road for quite some time. Reverse the Muslim ban. I mean, top of the mind for him is COVID relief. So if he can do some kind of mask mandate, you know, to him, it's unclear exactly how far, far he wants to go there. He wants to show that he has some decisive power and is willing to put his foot down and kind of screw what's happening on Capitol Hill to at least have mitigation effort stay where they are, you know, because folks are going to be pressuring it to go back to normal, whatever that means. But they're, they're prepared for a fight. And I think that a shattering blow to the campaign was to see the Senate not flip because they were really, really, really banking on having ambitious legislation. Even their um, climate legislation, which isn't exactly the Green New Deal, but it borrows heavily from it, is going to um, face some serious challenges. And I I think they're a bit of at a loss of what to do and are trying to answer your question on the fly. Yeah. And and even if they do somehow pull out these two Georgia Senate races and have this sort of one vote margin with a tie in the Senate for things like climate legislation, when you have, you know, Democrats like Joe Manchin Manchin, is a a non-starter. I will just make one final point on the COVID. I mean, All you have to do is look at the numbers for the last few days and just imagine after Thanksgiving, after Christmas, what they could be when Joe Biden takes office. You know, well over 200,000 cases a day, hospitals full. I mean, he could well be taking office with a national emergency, you know, a public health emergency beyond what we've even experienced to date, even at its height back in March and April. So that's that's a bit of a that has to be a bit of a sobering thought for them about what they're going to be having to deal with from day one. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's inheriting a crisis. Like, like you said, the numbers are going up every day. Last week, we saw the highest rate of in, in a single day of infections. And 
with gatherings, people. We see people at the streets right now not wearing masks just trying to celebrate this victory. <laughs> Folks seem to either not care or understand the risks and say they just still, they just want to go back to whatever their life is. And so he's going to be inheriting a true, a true sobering reality, just like you were saying. And I think they're trying to prepare for it. Well, that is why uh, I was just looking at a piece by our very own Andrew Romano about how, how he will govern. He pointed out that uh, Biden is rereading the defining moment, uh, which was the book by John Alter, frequent guest on Skullduggery, about FDR's first hundred days. So maybe hoping to get some inspiration from someone who became president under in a time of extraordinary crisis. And and as I remember that book, there was quite a bit of tension between. FDR during the transition and Herbert Hoover. A very um, chilly uh, ride, yes. a very chilly ride to the inauguration yeah, yeah. Uh, when and apparently they, they didn't Hoover talk. Hoover wouldn't go along with anything that FDR wanted to do during the transition. But and since I, we're I about we to get s- to Hunter Walker, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, yeah. get a sense of what that relationship will be <laughs> well, like. I was going to say that's nothing to what we can expect <laughs> right now. Well, exactly. It's that platitude history. It doesn't repeat itself, but it always rhymes. Yeah. Okay, Brittany, thanks a lot. And we will be uh, checking in with you quite frequently as the Biden transition and presidency goes along. I can't wait. You guys know how to reach me. All right. Thanks, Brittany. Okay, now for the view from Trump world, we have our very own Hunter Walker, White House correspondent. Hunter, uh, welcome back. As always, all I could think of while watching this grand celebration and speeches tonight from the vice president-elect and the president-elect is how infuriating it must have been for the president of the United States to watch the whole center of gravity of the universe shift from him to somebody else. I think you're totally right. I mean, President Trump is not someone who likes to lose. And frankly, you know, as the charmed life of a real estate heir slash celebrity, then president, he is not someone who's lost a lot in the past. We've all seen the joy that he took in his victories in the 2016 election. I mean, you know, it was a staple of his rallies over the years, just reliving state by state, each triumph he had in the primary and against Hillary Clinton. And today, you know, you see in the city where he lives, people have taken to the streets. His motorcade had to go through those crowds uh, when he returned to his golf course, from his golf course today. And now you have Joe Biden on TV making a victory speech. And I was thinking about this before. I mean, we know the president is just normally glued to cable news. I legitimately don't know whether he could have bared to watch this. I'm sure he was aware of it, And in light of that, I think the fact that we haven't seen the president tweet for the past couple hours, uh, we've barely seen him make public appearances in the past couple days, by Trumpian standards, this response to utter defeat is pretty subdued. You know, at some level, Hunter, he seems to have seen this coming for a long time. He talked about it on the campaign trail. You know, if I if I lose to this guy, you know, what am I going to do? I'll never be I'll never be able to talk to you guys again. So it's a kind of a strange, you know, on the one hand, on the other hand with with Trump. But 
I guess the question is, to the extent that we can divine it at all, unless you have reporting, like, what is the end game? I mean, he's already tweeted that he won and that the election is not over, but there's no path. So what is he going to do? Well, let's break this down a couple ways. Uh, First off, I think you make a really good point that in a way, the president has seen this coming. We all saw the polls. He also, you know, repeatedly in his rallies in the home stretch of the campaign, cast doubts about the process in advance and suggested that there could be fraud, which has been his strategy now in baselessly and falsely declaring himself the winner. And I think, you know, part of that is because his end game here is to try not to acknowledge this victory. But I also think part of that, we know from 2016, from our reporting at the time, that the polls showed the president behind then. His campaign's own internals showed him losing, and yet he improbably pulled off an upset. So I think on some level, I know he and his allies were really feeling like they could do it again. But as you said, they clearly haven't. And You know, one thing I do want to point out, I talked to a GOP source, as much as he was planning to dispute the election, he is doing that and was doing that in a very fundamentally unserious way. I mean, you know, we saw this bizarre press conference today with Corey Lewandowski and Rudy Giuliani, basically in the parking lot of a landscaping (laughs) office in Pennsylvania (laughs) next to an adult video store. I watched one of Rudy's broadcasts where he had quote unquote analysis on what he called, you know, the biggest election theft of the century. Rudy did this broadcast with ink all over his hands. He didn't (laughs) present a single piece of evidence, except he alleged there's an affidavit from one poll watcher who, you know, was prevented from observing the race, which obviously is an outcome determinative. He had a sheaf of papers in his hand and I zoomed in and literally the only thing on there was hand scrawled random numbers and names of states. Uh, So they're, they're not, you know, challenging this in any kind of serious way. One GOP source pointed out to me that in 2012, Mitt Romney had this entire team ready for election challenges. He had A-list lawyers and a plane ready to go if it was tight enough anywhere to go for a recount. Uh, What this GOP source said to me, was Trump had, quote, zero planning, no legit poll watching or recount plans. Corey Lewandowski and Rick Grinnell raving or waving around the political equivalent of a bloody rag is no substitute for legitimate planning. So and well, I Dave know, Bossie, I mean, I'm wondering if maybe and Dave the, the... Bossie in charge of the whole operation, <laughs> yeah. a guy who, you know, whatever his talents is no lawyer. But OK, so, Hunter, how long can this charade go on that to pretend this election is somehow in dispute? Well, so this gets to gets back to the other part of Dan's question, which is what is the president's endgame? Um, and I've talked to one Trump ally over the past couple days and What this person has said to me is, first off, there's growing and legitimate speculation in Trump world that the president could run again in 2024, and that essentially what we're going to see next is the president pivot to some combination of either running his own media operation or going into an endless campaign. And obviously those two things can work in concert. Yeah, but what about the next two and a half months while he's still president? Central to the branding of this effort is going to be this attempt to delegitimize the Biden victory and refuse to acknowledge it. This Trump ally that I spoke to today was comparing it to Isaiah Thomas uh, when he was on the Pistons, you know, walking off the floor without shaking Michael Jordan's hand when, when he lost in a basketball game. And he was saying that that sort of bad boy ethos that 
defined the 90s Detroit Pistons is something that Trump is hoping to bring here. And, you know, it also riles up the base. It's the ultimate red meat. You were wronged. I, I just think that something crazy about it. I mean, I've called these things unserious. But, but it is deadly serious because we've seen armed, peop armed people take to the streets. And the president is essentially telling a large part of his base that, you know, their votes were stolen from them. So I worry we'll see violence in the coming weeks, but I do not think we're going to see any kind of normal concession from Trump. I wonder if he'll go to the inauguration. I would highly doubt that. I expect, having watched Trump both in 2016 after he won and every winter following, that you know he's going to retreat to Mar-a-Lago a lot. Do, do, you, do you think he will thwart a smooth and productive transition? Because transitions are important. I mean, you know, uh, there is this period of limbo when our rivals and enemies around the world would want to take advantage of any kind of uh, confusion. We're in the middle of a pandemic where the incoming government is going to have to you know, have access to all sorts of information about, say, supply chains and distribution of vaccines. I mean, this is serious business. You know, is it just will, will we have Trump who's going to be you know throwing his temper tantrums like a like a petulant child in the Oval Office? But, you know, serious people in the government will be taking this transition seriously or can he actually do damage to the transition? And do you think he would? Well, there have always been shenanigans with these transitions. You know, it, it is it is a difficult moment when the White House changes hands. I mean, I think the most famous and silly instance of this is, I, I believe it was when Bill Clinton was leaving for President George W. Bush, staffers took the W's off the keyboards. Yeah. Um, so I think your question is, you know, will Trump's refusal to participate in the transition elevate it beyond that level? I think, as you pointed out, there's a lot of serious people in government and a lot of serious machinery that he simply can't stop here. For example, we saw Joe Biden's Secret Service detail kind of move in and reach presidential level. These are the agents that will escort him into the Oval Office, even before the media called this race when the writing was on the wall with the numbers. So I think a lot of the machinery of government and a lot of the serious people in his administration will do their jobs. But there's no question that, you know, separate from this issue I raised of undermining trust in the democratic process, the president's refusal to participate, you know, could have real impacts. We might not see the normal meetings that we would see. We might not see the, the normal, you know, information sharing, information exchange that we would see. But at the same time, I mean, I guess that's not surprising because we have never really seen the kind of normal, serious White House around this president that we have in the past, you know, with this level of acting secretaries, all of these unfilled positions and all of this turnover. I think the next couple months are just going to be more of the same. So a couple of things, uh, Hunter. First of all, um, on the uh, litigation front, the president said today or the campaign said today they plan to prosecute their cases starting Monday. Of course, they're not prosecutors. They would be filing lawsuits as plaintiffs seeking relief. But that aside, what are their cases or what is their case at this point? I did see where they filed a lawsuit on Saturday over improper guidance by poll workers at Arizona for people who might have cast over votes. You know, A, Arizona is not essential to the outcome of this election and be, you know, who knows how many people we're talking about here, but it doesn't sound like that would be the basis for a substantial number of improperly cast votes. So 
like on that front alone, what's the closest thing they have here to a case? <laughs> as far as I know, and again, I've tried to talk to David Bossy, who, as you pointed out, is leading this, this legal challenge effort. I've tried to talk to Corey Lewandowski, Trump's former campaign manager, who's another leading figure in this. I've repeatedly talked, tried to talk to Rudy Giuliani, apart from watching him on YouTube. I have not heard from him. One person I did hear from prior to the official call was Jay Sekulow, who is a pretty legitimate, serious lawyer. He's worked as one of the president's personal lawyers. He was on the impeachment team. And he has a winning record in the Supreme Court. You know, he has a long history of particularly advocating, you know, for conservative Christian groups and, you know, these so-called religious freedom cases. I think his record is something like 8-3. This is a real lawyer. And I talked to Jay about this very question, and he told me that he he's advising the overall team on legal strategy. And he is also the attorney of record for the Trump campaign in what was, by all expert accounts, their most serious and legitimate case, which is this one in Pennsylvania, where they were essentially arguing against a three-day extension that the Democratic judges on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court gave for people to get their ballots mailed in. So this allowed, and this happened in October, it allowed the state to receive ballots from Tuesday through Friday instead of just on Tuesday. But there's no indication that those ballots are going to make a difference one way or the other Absolutely. in the outcome of this Look, this of is silly. in Pennsylvania. I mean, this is silliness because at this point, there is no chance in the well, world that, that the Supreme Court is going to intervene in this election. Also, I mean, even when I talked to Jay at the time, he was saying it could only be, you know, outcome determinative if this election was just coming down to a small number of votes in Pennsylvania. And Joe Biden's victory was simply bigger than that. Since that So what's Sekulow saying not, now? Yeah. I have not talked to him and I have not talked to anybody who's telling me that there's any other kind of serious legal challenge. In fact, the Trump ally I was talking to today pointed out that Jason Miller, Trump's senior campaign advisor, has not even publicly been involved in these efforts with, you know, Corey, Rudy, and Bossy. So it seems like some of the people who might be expected to fight alongside the president and come up with something else are realizing that they're out of options. So I've got one last question, which is this has been a... Um extraordinary and strange election in a lot of different ways. Uh, but one that uh, stands out to me, and I think this is flows from the fact that the president of the United States is disputing the results, but there have not been, as far as I know, other than Mitt Romney and I think Jeb Bush, there have been almost no other senior Republicans who have acknowledged the results of the election. Mitch McConnell, at least at the time of this taping, which is Saturday night, has not issued a statement or said anything. No Republican leaders in the, in the House no, and no other senior senators other, other than R Mitt Romney. So what I mean, are they still afraid to separate themselves from this president? I mean, what is going on? Why have we not heard from any any senior Republicans about this? That is that is such a great question. I mean, apart from Senator Romney, who you know obviously voted for impeachment, he, he's always been a little bit of a uh, outlier in the Trump era Republican Party, 
And then Jeb Bush, who again, more of a centrist mainstream Republican, who also has been repeatedly belittled by this president when they ran in the primary together. Some Bush administration officials, uh, Karl Rove apparently acknowledged the victory on Fox News. Uh, also Ari Fleischer, Bush's former press secretary, he acknowledged the victory, but basically said pre people should let President Trump air this out right now because it's an emotionally tough time for him. But what you have seen from other Republicans, I mean, apart from people like Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio, who have actively gone down this road with the president of baselessly disputing the election, what you've seen is a lot of silence. I mean, I just pointed out Jason Miller. You know, one thing I've even heard in Trump circles, there are rumors that Mark Meadows, the chief of staff, claimed to have coronavirus, which, uh, you know, it was just came out that he had reportedly tested positive so he could get out of here and kind of not take a visible role right now. So a big thing I think you're hearing from Republicans is silence. And Dan, I think you, you basically were about to hit the nail on the head there. You know, this president is extremely popular in the Republican Party. I think 80 per, to 90% support from within the party. He has this base that really, really loves him. The Republican Party essentially made a bargain where they sold themselves to Donald Trump, uh, ran on his popularity and did win one term because of it. And now as he's kind of spiraling out, I think it's hard for them to go against that. And that's Yeah, the, yeah, but 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 Hunter, the you know, the clock has moved here. I mean, you know, the cover of the New York Post, Rupert Murdoch's, you know, flagship, you're fired picture of Trump. It's over. You know, I give this a couple of days next week where they'll go into court, presumably with these flimsy with these flimsy cases. They won't get very far. And then you'll start to hear one after another gently and then not so gently. Mr. President, you've lost. Let's acknowledge it. But my final question. You're right, Mike. I, I think yeah. we are going to see, um, you know, people yeah. start to see this sinking ship. Uh, one yeah, of my I, I was talking to one tonight who's, you know, was all set to issue a statement saying, and this is a senior Republican in the Congress, all set to say it's time and then say, all right, let's just give them another day or two to file their lawsuit in, you know, wherever. And then and then I'll, I'll come out with it. But my last question to you is after that is what are we going to see from Trump in his final days? Executive orders, pardons, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, new initiatives, new declarations uh, on, on the foreign policy front, on domestic policy, firings, of course. <laughs> what do you anticipate? Yeah, I mean... As I said earlier, uh, physically and, and literally, I think I anticipate him spending a lot of time in Florida uh, at his private club, Mar-a-Lago. That is often where he spends weekends in the winter. It's often where he spends the holidays. He has this New Year's party that has been a long tradition for him. And I think he just can't bear this and wants to get out of Dodge. I think the thing I'm most interested in and most excited about to watch, and I, I feel like a lot of observers feel this way, is the pardon landscape. There's a lot of legal jeopardy and ongoing investigations surrounding the president and many of his allies, uh, his former top advisor, Steve Bannon. Um, he himself is under investigation. Yeah, my, my, Flynn's going to get a pardon very soon, I would expect, because Judge Sullivan still hasn't ruled. It's out there. He could say, look, you know, my own Justice Department declared there's no longer a case against this guy. This is enough. I'm pardoning him. So I, I, I would not be surprised pardon. to see that within the week. Yeah, the presidential pardons and maneuvering is going to be one of the most 
fascinating things that happens here. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I think, um, you know, that is going to be one of the spaces to watch. I mean, you, you guys basically pointed at the two things I'm most interested in. One, you know, does the normal process of a presidential transition happen? And two, you know, what does the president do to try to diminish the legal jeopardy around himself and his allies? And, and well, I'm sure I'm we'll be sure that, watching this. I'm, and I'm sure that is at the top of his mind, the top of your mind, the top of our mind on Skullduggery. Hunter, uh, thanks a lot for uh, joining us late on a Saturday night, and we will stay in touch. What are Saturday nights anymore? <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, Hunter. All right, take care.